Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NOCO FM. Welcome to Connecting a Better World, where we spend time meeting some of the most incredible human beings who make this world a better place. We will learn how each individual took their ideas, mission, and purpose to create and serve others in business and organizations that surround social good, social entrepreneurship, and social impact, and find out how we, together, can further connect others to help. I am your host, Dr. Natalie Phillips. Today, I will be talking with Dan Polino, co-founder of Everyone Matters, Inc., a social impact enterprise dedicated to ensuring that everyone has equal access to citizen-based services, healthcare, and education. He is a regular contributor to the discussion on healthcare citizen-based services on CNN, Bloomberg, the BBC, and other media outlets. Dan worked for IBM for 36 years, leading its global healthcare and life sciences business for 10 years. He is also co-author of Trusted Healers, a book that takes a reader on a journey to the future of healthcare. All right, so I'm excited to meet and talk to Dan Polino. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, delighted to be here. So I um, am excited because You know, we talked a little bit before we got on and we have some common interests here about giving back, about, you know, what you're working on with Everyone Matters. Um, You know, you've got a book that's out, uh, but I want to kind of start at the beginning and I want you to really start to tell me, I like to get to the meat of the person and and the story behind, you know, who you are, you know, introduce you to my listeners. So tell me a little bit more about you, you know, how you grew up, you know, what kind of work environment did you, did you step into um, before everything where you are right now. So let's start there. Well, thank you. You know, I, uh, I grew up uh, just outside of Rochester, New York, in a small town called Fairport, New York, and uh, probably not unlike many of your listeners. You know, they grew up, I had a sister and good friends, and, and I was a paper boy. And I was a morning paper boy for the Democrat and Chronicle. And if you know anything about Rochester, New York, it snows 360 days out of 365. And it's not very warm early in the morning. But, but I had, for many years, uh, a paper route. And so they would deliver the papers to me. The garage door would go up, and then I would take it out to my, my people that were on the route. Well, when the sun's coming up and you're kind of walking by yourself, you kind of start thinking about things differently. And you start asking yourself, well, what am I going to do in life? What do I, no matter how old you are, just that experience of delivering papers. And then I, I happened to have been an altar boy, which was a right of privilege in our, our family. So my dad would then drive me to Assumption Church and uh, Father Kelly would say mass. I think he has a record for about 17 minutes saying a mass, but nonetheless. So I, I would start my day that way before I would even, even go to school and then my dad and I would go have breakfast together. And it was wow. a great opportunity for us to kind of have that kind of relationship. Uh, of course, I would fall asleep at 9 o'clock at night. I was just, you know, dead tired from having a day that started at 5.30 in the morning. But, but it kind of built into me this idea of just how you think differently and what happens in the world. And I, I look at that as a very strong 
foundation. And then, of course, I went to college and um, had good experiences there and ran some national organizations. And I ran the University Center Board on campus. And then I was fortunate enough when I, I got out having uh, two undergraduate degrees and a master's degree that IBM hired me. And, uh, and I'm a behavioral guy. So I, I, I believe in the science. I also believe in how people think and act. I look to create value and had a chance to work for IBM for 36 years, uh, ran their healthcare and life sciences business. I ended up running all of the government education, life sciences, health, and, and smarter cities, about $20 billion of our $100 billion at that, that time. And I had a chance to work with these great leaders and I could see what they were trying to do. And I would ask them questions that I wanted to ask them, just like when I was a paper boy, just I thought, how did they think? What, what are they trying to do? And, and I learned so much from, from many of those leaders that when I, when I retired from IBM, people asked me to write the book, Trusted Healers. Interesting. So that's, okay, so that's I got. okay, so I've got to stop because a lot of people think, okay, IBM computers, right? And you said you're a behavioral guy. And so how does the, you know, the health sciences, how does that work in with IBM and what exactly did you do? Yeah, so uh, first of all, absolutely right. People would think about IBM with computers. Well, when you think about hospital systems, insurance companies, life sciences organizations, governments around the world, they need a backbone of technology that would drive their their business needs, et cetera. And and so we had a team that would, would do that. Well, then along the way, we saw that we could start to create different new opportunities. So for instance, I launched artificial intelligence with Watson thinking about healthcare and wow. trying to reduce the amount of time it would take from clinical diagnosis to the best treatment patterns, uh, being able to look at clinical trials and go much faster than you could ever go with clinical trials, thinking about citizen-based services and accessibility mm -hmm. for all and creating cities that were like that. You can start to feel in what I'm telling you mm -hmm. that you have a framework, a technology framework, but then it's how do you apply to have this opportunity to change people's lives. Yes. And I was fortunate enough to have important jobs within IBM where we liked grand challenges and we went after those. And I happened to be one of the individuals that was tasked with running some pretty big businesses and, and directing that. And, um, and I must tell you, I've always believed in aspiration, inspiration, and discipline. Do you have an aspiration that inspires others? And do you have then that ability with discipline for course correction and speed? Mm. And, and we would look to say, what's that aspiration? How can we help people? How can we help people within healthcare? And that's how we ended up with the patient-centered medical home, the idea of the continuum of care, how we would get away from the obligatory clipboard, the file folders that would never follow you around, the information that wasn't there about you that needed to be there. And we worked with the hospital systems and the insurance companies the life to embed that and, and, and work with that. And it was my great honor to, to do that for many years. And we, I think we helped change things for the better yeah, uh, yeah. along the way. So, um, wow, yeah. that's incredible. Yeah. Life sciences. So, and, and I feel like you have, because even, you know, as an audiologist, we have so 
many forms of technology that we're able to use. Healthables, you know, I've listened to many um, talks from futurists that are looking into healthcare and seeing where is it going from here. And you can only imagine. I mean, you know, I mean, I can't imagine until they present it. I'm like, wow, that is so, so cool. I can't even imagine right. how that came to be. You know, and you were at the beginning of this, you know, like you said, with artificial intelligence, um, it, people now know what it is. You know, maybe yeah. when you were kind of going around, especially to the hospitals, um, they might not have totally grasped the concept. But I think with a lot of technology and how it's going and how we're now using it in healthcare a lot, I feel like that we have artificial intelligence and hearing aids, you know? Mm -hmm. So I feel yeah. like a lot of this technology has has, has um, moved forward and you were part of that. And how right. exciting is that? I'm just thinking, how did you walk away from that, you know? Yeah. Um, because it is so exciting. Well, I, I, I must say, uh, although you're, I appreciate your compliments to me, I worked with the great leaders, uh, Glenn Steele from Geisinger, George Halverson from Kaiser, Toby Cosgrove, Cleveland Clinic, Jeff Romoff from University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, uh, the leading insurance companies. So none of this works on the technology unless there's a vision that someone has mm -hmm. where they can apply that into making a difference. And, and I was very fortunate to partner up with these great leaders to then deploy that technology under their vision mm -hmm. because they're the ones that had to tell the docs, the nurses, the others, we want to go forward with that. And, uh, and of course, I was fortunate to have IBM and IBM's research and development capabilities and, you know, a, a pretty strong balance sheet to invest with them in trying to make a difference. But I, it, it takes a team in order to have this all work. And as you know, for the most part, many times you open up a dictionary and you look at a doctor and they've got their arms folded. And if you're looking up curmudgeon, that's kind of what you see for a physician sometimes. You know what I'm saying. So you've got to make sure that you're fact-based in, in what you're doing. And when you take time to implement something like the electronic medical records and the artificial, mm -hmm. you're taking away from patient time or mm -hmm. education time, or potentially just their own personal time because they're so burned out. So it better be something that has value that's going to change uh, patients' lives bef before you bring that into a, an organization like a hospital system that's literally saving lives and take care of people every day. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me a little bit more about Everyone Matters. What is, what is Everyone Matters about? Well, first I have to tell you about the name. So uh, I gave many speeches and did uh, TV work and others along the way, having the responsibilities that I did. Mm -hmm. And I would conclude every one of my speeches the same way. And I would ask people a rhetorical question. Why do we do what we do? Now, when I first did that, many people would give me the stare of the Wisconsin dairy cow. You know, Kelly. Like, what is he talking about? Soon after, people would answer my question with my words. When I would say at the end of a speech, why do we do what we do? And people would say, because everyone matters. So when I retired, not only did they encourage me to write a book called Trusted Healers with these relationships and kind of best practices and look at best performing systems around the world, literally in leadership and societal change, uh, I formed a company. Um, Ann and I formed a company that is based on societal needs and the ability to have all voices heard and to be able to build the right kind of systems 
And so I have opinions about how people should have health care and what it should look like in Medicare and Medicaid and trying to reach out to the underserved and trying to create the right kind of models. And I'm in a unique position because I've been around the world. I've seen the best systems. And so the voice that I want to have is a voice that helps everyone. And consequently, Everyone Matters is an organization that's socially impactful and we consult and help others and sit on many different boards. And people like the idea, especially when they hear the story about the name of the company because Everyone Matters. So what did you see around the world? I mean, you know, can you share some of your favorite uh, systems or protocols in place for healthcare and how you would want, you know, or how you see maybe even because we're in the United States, the United States to just shift even a little bit? Let me give you a couple of things. Uh, and, and people may start to realize some of this is obvious and some of it may not be. Uh-huh. First of all, the best performing systems in the world are in countries like Denmark and and others, and they're 5.5 million people. So I'll tell you what people usually say. They say, Dan, 5.5 million people, we're 330 million in the United States, too difficult to do. However, most healthcare is regional. If you think about your healthcare Mm -hmm. and you think about your patients, most of them are served within the region that they live in. Now, the reason you'd go out is if you wanted to go to a Mayo or you wanted to go to a specialty or you wanted to go to Cancer Treatment Centers of America or you felt like you needed Cleveland Clinic or something like that. That's very few. So it does become applicable to be able to see Denmark versus a, 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 a region. And what we found is that countries that perform better spend roughly 14 to 20 percent of their first dollar on preventative care, upfront care. We only spend five to seven percent. We spend our money on specialty care and usually end-of-life care. We don't spend our money on well care. And so that's why in the book we talk about how this can change your life because we give you questions you should ask your doctor. And then the idea of what you should look at, your blood pressure, glucose levels, obesity, uh, are you up to date on your vaccines? Do you know who your primary care doctor is? So as your listeners are listening to this, these are things that they could take away And actually, people in the book, they buy the book and they tear out pages and they take them to their doctor and they say, I want to talk to you about this preventative care and these kind of numbers. Can you help me? So the, the, the first point that I want to make to you is that other countries that have performed better and their costs are less do that on the front end of care. We leave the problem of our healthcare system often at the doorstep of the emergency room. And that's the most expensive care. And as you know, that's usually not connected back into the docs and, and, and everyone else. And that's getting better. But nonetheless, none of us want to go into the emergency room. And, and if you end up having a, a, a primary care doc in your life and you have a patient-centered medical home, there are certain percentages, 25% less per, on a percentage basis that you're going to end up in an emergency room. You're going to spend 31% less in out-of-pocket wow. expense. It's very significant. And then if you can actually get your life around the idea of knowing what your numbers are for your blood pressure and glucose Mm -hmm. and you have the help of a doctor, Dr. Mike Roizen from Cleveland Clinic says you can avoid up to 80 to 84% of chronic diseases if you pay attention to these things up front when when people are going through their their life. Mm -hmm. And then we know from Cleveland Clinic that 
if you don't have a chronic disease before you're 57, there's a good chance you're going to live a long, productive life. Now, parts are parts, and people have knees and hips and things like that as we just wear out parts, et cetera. But if you can live your life and you can do the right things for yourself mm-hmm. and you can get past right now that golden period of time, that age is 57, without a chronic disease, there's a good chance that you're going to live a very healthy, productive life for an extended period of time. So preventative care up front knowing your numbers, having a relationship with a primary care doc and a system that's a patient-centered medical home, those help you lead a very productive and high-quality life. Gosh, it seems so easy. Like, it's just, like, you just spit out some numbers, and it just seems so easy, and it's like, why aren't we doing this? Then I know that you said it was the numbers of maybe 330 million versus, you know, 5.5 million, Um, but I feel like, I mean, where do you see this going? It's so easy for you to explain it, and when people listen to it, I mean, how do people make change? Well, the good news is, first of all, there's many systems that do this. But our healthcare literacy, ours being yours and mine, a consumer, people don't have the healthcare literacy to know what they're looking for. Uh-huh. So, so much of trusted healers is a level of education for a patient or an individual of what to look for in the system. And when you start asking these questions, then you'll see, oh, yeah. Would you like us to call you in for your vaccinations? Would you like to be on the call list to make sure you don't miss a mammogram or whatever it might be? And they go, yeah, that would be better. Then you have this continuum of care. So part of why we wrote the book is to make sure people knew these types of practices were out there. Now, roughly between 48 and 52% of care is delivered in one way or another, like what we're talking about in the United States. Now, one of the things that we challenge in the U.S. is that we like choice, right? In the United States, we like choice. So when you look at the healthcare system, there's four ways that we pay for care. You, you either have private insurance that mm-hmm. you do. You have some level of Medicare or Medicaid. You might be in the VA, which is owned by the government and paid for by the government. Or you may decide to go alone. About 10% of the population says, I don't want any kind of health care. I'm going to go. Go, go alone. Now, do you think it's more or less expensive to have four different options on administrative costs for the population to offer that choice? I think it's more expensive. It's, it's absolutely more. Now, I'm not saying that we should change it. We should go to one for, and mm-hmm. I don't believe in that, but there are efficiencies that we can start to drive. And so the idea of these consolidated systems where you start to see the ability to have primary care integrated with specialty care and mm-hmm. um, in your practice too, being able to be connected back where that information travels with the patient. When someone shows up, you see tendencies that you might be able to report back to other caregivers and doctors that would be helpful uh, uh, trying to help them with whatever might be. And you might pick something up yourself that mm-hmm. might be not necessarily in your practice, but it might be mental and behavioral aspect that you want someone to look at and do the idea of having that in a continuum of care. Now you can start to see why IBM becomes so important because Mm -hmm. you need them to have the technologies, this interoperability to have the electronic medical records uh, coupled with the companies like Epic and Cerner and others that are out there to bring that seamless ability to share that information about a patient. And that becomes something that's very important. And you want to be in a system like that. 
You want to be in a network that shares that information. And then you won't have to fill out the obligatory clipboard. You won't have to worry about that file folder and that knock on the door when someone comes in and pretends to know you and they really don't. <laughs> I'm just laughing because you're like, yep, that, yep, check, check, check. Yep. Yeah, that would be lovely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's awesome. So, um, so talk to me a little bit more about the book, Trusted Healers. I know that you had mentioned it and, you know, you kind of yeah. go back and forth between using parts of the different book in some of your consulting. So, um, you know, what, what's in the book? What, what can people find, you know, who would be best um, looking into getting this book and, and learning from it? Well, first of all, it's it, it's a book for for, for everyone. Um, li- literally, people have called me and said I, I tore pages out and took them into my doctor. So That's it fits so cool. for for, for, for anyone. Then, if you like leadership, if you like the idea of talking about societal change, and you want a path on healthcare, it, it's it's a good book that way. Universities, graduate students, people studying in those three specific areas really like it. Uh, my friend Patrick Kennedy wrote the foreword for us on mental and behavioral health and some of the opioid challenges that are there. So if you like to hear the voice of someone like Patrick Kennedy in, in the book, and then there's 40 some on other leaders that share their experiences of how they changed healthcare and what it looked like. And it goes from uh, UK to uh, South Africa to places around the world and the best performing systems in the, in the US. So if you like to read about that, how they attempted to solve problems, what their work ethic looked like, and what their result was within healthcare. It's a, it's a, it's, it's an interesting book. Um, people can look at the reviews. Most people think it's a fast read. It's informative. Mm-hmm. Many people think it's kind of like what you're saying now, somewhat aspirational. It's like, I want that system. Mm-hmm. I want what he writes about in that book. Where can I go get that? And, um, and of course, we follow the, the path of Dr. Paul Grundy, who uh, created the patient-centered medical home. They call him the godfather of that. And he, in my mind, is a rock star uh, and will be on Mount Rushmore of, of healthcare transformation because he has been the one that has tried to help primary care stand up this continuum of care, ensuring people get the right kind of care around the world, literally around, around the world. Um, so I think people that are interested in their own personal care, their mm-hmm. family's care, people that want to study some of those kind of pillars that are in the book, and then for sure, uh, leading thinkers, uh, graduate students, people studying healthcare. If you're an RN or a PA or, you know, even a doc that might be interested in picking it up and look at some of the chapters, uh, it, it may create a level of aspiration for people to go forward into a guide, what should we do in, in, in the future? Yeah, I agree. And I agree. I think that's a great point too, in pulling it into the educational aspect of people who are going into becoming doctors or healthcare providers as well, because you're shaping them right now. You know, stepping into the medical field is different. It, it's much different than even when I stepped into it, you know, 20 years ago. But it's shaping them to start thinking about some of these things. And with you know, providers making special, not specialty, but VIP-ish sort of um, uh, patients, you know, and groups together, maybe they can form a group that all has the same type of outlook in how they provide care to their patients. Now, yes, we still have insurances and and things to deal with, and we're, you know, I feel like our hands are tied because, you know, of the, of everything, the whole system, right? Um, And with insurances, but even going into, um, 
the medical field. I think that it's really important to start looking at how can we all be better, right? And it's going to be for everybody involved, and especially for our patients involved as well. Right. So let me, let me uh, if I can, take you uh, to a place and create a picture or a movie in, in your own mind here. Healthcare for many people are, is, is created where someone kind of rides in on a horse into a town. They knock on the door. They come help you. They leave. They get back on the horse. And they leave. And you're not sure if they're coming back or you're coming back. And that's kind of the way that healthcare was perceived, especially primary care, for many years. And, and you didn't have that thought process that somebody was going to be with you for an extended period of time. Now, there may have been a family doc or somebody that you would, but it wasn't really embedded into a continuum of care. So let me fast forward to today. I mean, really fast forward. Let me fast forward you all the way to Formula One in NASCAR. And you are in the race of your life. And what you want is a pit crew. A pit crew that is made up of RNs, PAs, primary care, specialty, just like you, et cetera. And, and they're telling you to come in for an appointment. They're calling you, telling you, hey, there's a potential crash up here unless we do something. Tires are a little mm. different things along the way. And you come in and, and they talk to you and they help you and they all communicate and they quickly get you back out onto that track that race of your life and you continue to go forward and they're monitoring you and they're helping you think about that. And so we are moving as a society from what it would have been a, a, a horse, a cowboy, a cowgirl, somebody riding in town, riding out to now this formula one where we are in the race of our life. And what we want is a pit crew with the same colors that, that we have on our car in that pit crew and helping us get in, get out, be effective and helping us get to that finish line, that, that productivity, that contribution, the person that we want to be. And I believe we can do that. I, I really believe that's in front of us. Yeah, that was awesome. I loved how you painted that picture. I think it is, is totally true. And especially when you said, we're looking ahead. We're looking ahead, preventative care. We want to do this now so that you can just sideswipe that. If you can, you know what I mean? Um, yes. Or be as best in the best shape that you can when you hit that particular milestone in your life. Um, so that was a real visual you know, painting of a picture that made a lot of sense. So I'm hoping that a lot of um, listeners, if they're not watching this, um, just went there with you as well because I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, so for so, are you working on anything? Any projects? Any anything that you may have experienced, maybe that has touched your heart to continue to get you to give back in this way? I mean, because technically you are retired from your job, yeah. but you're continuing on doing even an, like a really important job as well. So, what keeps you going? Well, there's a, there's a couple of things, and thank you for, for asking that question. First, uh, working with Patrick Kennedy, mental behavioral health, we, we worked on a lot of things, including now including information in the electronic medical record for patients about their mental and behavioral health. That wasn't always in there. We didn't have this checkup from the neck up. We didn't have this parity of mental and behavioral health along with physical health. So we worked to get the electronic medical records to, to, to have that in there. We also worked to have referrals from docs go to people that can help with mental and then come back because people didn't like to refer outside for mental and behavioral health 
because I didn't think they were getting the patient back. Mm. And then finally, we, we've seen the systems change enough that the uh, uh, Supreme Court ruled in a very monumental case, Witt versus the Supreme Court, it was against United Healthcare. They ruled that the health insurance companies had to do much more around mental and behavioral. There's three major important landmark efforts that kind of changed uh, what we see with mental and behavioral health, and especially now with COVID. Most of the appointments, um, especially now tele- telehealth, mm-hmm. are, are around mental and behavioral. Uh, visits. Wow. They, they've escalated uh, tremendously. And, and so it's so important to knit together the fabric, if you will, of having the information really available, having docs be able to refer, have it paid for appropriately. So I give you that. That's kind of a big foundational, really important, big movement. But let me give you a small one. It's big now, but it was small when I saw it. So I used to ask the team when I traveled, take me someplace that I would never go to. Show me something that's really special. Rock my socks. So one time we were traveling in Europe, we went to this little island of Jersey. The Isle of Jersey is between France and the the UK. It actually has a lot of data centers there. It's very interesting, has interesting tax benefits, but it's a very small island. There I met Joe. Joe came up with this idea called Call and Check. So what is call and check? So I land, meet Joe for dinner. We'd had a long day. He says, tomorrow I'm going to share with you what we're doing with call and check. So what they did is they asked the postal workers, the civil servants, that when they delivered the mail, they trained them to ask five to seven questions around the health of an individual. And they made sure that their rugs were down. There wasn't physical abuse. There wasn't excessive drinking. At first, they weren't necessarily received that well. They were like, why are you checking up? But then all of a sudden, guess what happens? Everybody's looking for the delivery. Everyone's looking for someone to come forward and ask that question. And now the UK picked it up. And in the boroughs of the UK, they've rolled out call and check. Now I'm going to give you all the way to maybe where you live today. If you go by your fire department, there's a good chance there's a sign in front of that that says barbecue chicken event tonight or Friday fundraiser. And then they usually say today's whatever day it is, August 27th, we have gone out on a hundred or so different engagements. And they proudly put that up there. Well, what happens if we start to think about EMTs and fire department and others where they're out in the community and they know what happens in the little town and they become part of something like call and check where we can check on people and have wellness visits and be able to do things like that. What happens? What I saw on the Isle of Jersey was amazing. And the UK is rolling this out. Uh, Jeremy Hunt, who actually finished second to Boris Johnson to be the prime minister, he championed this. And the idea that someone would knock on the door, not only just deliver your mail, but would start to, and it doesn't have to be the mail carrier. It can be other people and you can create this kind of work that can be done. So small Isle of Jersey, big idea, now being rolled out in the UK, very applicable and something that you could use all the way down to your, your local fire department, EMT and the volunteers that support your community. Um, wow. And that's, that's so amazing to me. You're so much about the good in people. 
But when you see these ideas that start this way and they're for the good of the people, mm-hmm. then they just explode. Now, the healthcare industry is lo- loaded with tombstones of ideas that people had. Mm-hmm. Many ideas. And unfortunately, for whatever reason, they don't take off. Usually they don't take off. It's because they're not centered on that continuum of care, not centered on the benefit to the patient. And that's what I saw when I traveled around the world was how people would think about the patient in the middle. And when you have the patient in the middle, then all of a sudden the hospital systems, the insurance companies, the life Mm -hmm. sciences companies, the communities, you see they all start to work together. They're almost uh, these concentric circles, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then the individual or the family is in the middle and these community centers start to come up and be able to provide support and and, and do these things. And so that's where I see many of these ideas coming together in a way that create value for our citizens. And I've seen them in countries around the world. And I'm hopeful that Trusted Healers bring some of those ideas to people where they'll take that and say, ha, an aspiration. Let's inspire people to go make the difference. Let's have discipline for course correction and speed and go make a difference. Everyone matters. It seems so simple. I mean, what you described of is people that are already out there holding each other accountable. I mean, it seems so simple and like a no brainer, you know? I mean, how do you see this? I feel like people that are listening to this, I mean, I'm already getting on board. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I've got to go out and get that book now. And you know, but it's, it, it, it's so simple. Like, I feel like, why isn't it happening? You know, what, what, what can people do? Um, like one step at a time, you know, besides you, you, you'd already described, you know, some people taking pages out of that book. Right. Um, right. and I feel like right. people sometimes listening to, um, podcasts like this or listening to somebody like you who have these uh, amazing ideas that you've seen across the world, but then they look at themselves and they say, but I'm just me. You know, like what can yeah. I do? Yeah. Well, first, first of all, I, I appreciate your comments. And remember, I started our conversation by telling you I was nothing more than a paper boy. And, and, and I have more scars than stars, uh, believe me, in, in doing what I, I did. And I was very fortunate to have a company like IBM and tremendous people and Dr. Paul Grundy and relationships to be able to go forward and Mike Roizen from Cleveland Clinic, et cetera. So, so, so I've been blessed to see and experience and and that's why I wanted to write the book but that does you don't have to write the book to change your family's life mm-hmm. you don't have to write the book to be that particular person in a community to, to to make a difference and there's many of these ideas that you can bring forward and then figure out what's your skill set what what can mm-hmm. you do do you think that you bring what are your skills that you bring forward and then go out and get involved and be able to help these things out even if it's just stepping up within your family now i will tell you mm-hmm. i have a conversation on mental and behavioral health with many people and we talk about opioid challenges almost always in large audiences I will start to see tears. Why? Every family is affected and impacted by mental and behavioral health issues. Every family, I'm telling you, every family. And many of these things go unaddressed until someone ends up in the hospital or potentially worse. So even if it's in the family of saying something lovingly, and I mentioned this with Dr. Oz, he had me on the show, 
to, to literally have this conversation about, Dan, where can people start? And they can start in situations at home where they can have that loving conversation and hold up the mirror and say, this is what this looks like to me. How are you doing? Can I take you to the doctor? Can we go have this conversation and potentially change someone's life that's in your family that has a problem today? So you don't have to go change the world. You don't have to have this huge aspiration. It's wonderful if you do, but it could be as important as read the book and then ask yourself, how does this apply to my family? Mm-hmm. Is there, am I being called to go talk to somebody and try and help someone that's close to me? Mm-hmm. And I believe that people can. I do too. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, you know, you're so inspirational. I love that. Uh, I know you don't take a lot of credit for it, but, you know, coming from, you know, being a newspaper boy in Rochester, an altar boy, all the way to where you are right now, retired, but still giving back in a certain way in the areas that you can because of your passion and because of your skills, because of your experience and what you've seen, you know, what is one piece of advice that you can give? You know, it, it might not be down this exact journey, but for people who are listening, you know, what's a piece of advice that you can give for people to just give back and, and make this world a better place? Well, thank you. I, uh, in the book, I actually give people six promises. And if they follow these six promises, I think I can help them change their life. Uh, much of this is being reflective. You, your rhetoric matters. How you show up matters. Realizing the impact of your individual decisions. These things matter. So in the book, I, I do give six lessons or six promises that I think can make a difference. But I believe that if you follow your passions, if you're honest with yourself and you talk to people that know you and find out what, what are you good at, what do you want to go pursue? Uh, I, I've always believed in making a difference. I've always believed in trying to bring out that better in, in, in people along the way. And I have always believed that you as an individual, if you have an aspiration, what is it? Tell someone. And when I've given this talk to people, it's oftentimes someone will come up to me and say, I just want to be a really good mother, my aspiration, and I want to inspire our family. And that means that there is the ability for us to do these things. So this idea about aspiration, inspiration, discipline, it doesn't necessarily need to be a big company like IBM or it doesn't need to be some kind of theme that someone picks up or a banner or a slogan. It could be how you feel with what you do for your family or yourself or someone that's important to you. And then go tell them, go tell them. And, and for me, I would tell people, let's go make a difference. And kind of in conclusion a little bit, I wrote the book, not because I thought about writing, writing a book. But when I first started with IBM in the healthcare and life sciences business of what we were trying to do, I had gathered 137 people together, many from the outside, many within IBM. I said, let's chart our course here, not about technology and selling computers, but how we make an impact in the world. They did an unbelievable piece of work. They built our business plan. It went for people said, yes, let's do it. And I was fortunate to get everything funded and we went out and made a difference. Our business results were good and people felt that we made a difference. Now, at the end of this session, where I had people sequestered, if you will, for a week to build this plan, 
not only did they give themselves a standing ovation for what they had brought together as an idea, remember the aspiration, the inspiration piece, but I told them someday someone's going to write a book about you all. Now, this is 20 years ago. Little did I think it would be me writing the book about what these people did. And so it, it's been my great pleasure to work with the people that are in the book and, and bring the stories out and try and bring some level of aspiration to try and, and, and make a difference. And like I've said before, why do we do what we do? It's, I believe it's because everyone matters. Thank you so much. It was an absolute treat to meet you and to listen to you and to learn about what you're doing. Um, I love what you're doing uh, as well as your tagline of Everyone Matters. And um, thank you so much for your time and to be able to share this with my listeners. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to Connecting a Better World, and thank you, NOCO FM, for supporting this show. If you haven't heard, NOCO FM is dedicated to bringing diverse voices and spotlighting a unique culture to Fort Collins and beyond. For more information, please visit www.noco.fm. If you connected to something in this episode, we would love to hear from you. Our contact info will be listed in the show notes, as well as you can reach us on our social media channels. Please feel free to share our podcast with your friends and loved ones. For more shows, please tune in to noco.fm online. This has been a production of NOCO FM.